is, is an essential element in the creative, is the mysterious. The impenetrable, the profound depth out of which glorious things come, but nobody can see why. We are indeed alive. Might not seem like we are because it's been a few months since we've recorded our last podcast. <laughs> months? Is it, has it in, only been months? <laughs> but in case you forgot, this is The Troublemakers. Um, we should probably do an episode about overcoming procrastination. That seems to be a creative problem. Yeah, let's think about that for a little while. <laughs> um, well, on this podcast, we talk to compelling troublemakers from all walks of life and break down how they use creativity to find success, fulfillment, and happiness so you can too. That's the important part, really. The so you can too. Otherwise, it's kind of, there's no Because we're, we're all just trying to figure this thing out, this thing called life. I agree. Um, so tonight, uh, tonight's guest is a guy by the name of Christian Erickson, who's a friend of Mr. Carter's uh, father, husband, creative partner uh, at a company called Zeus Jones in Minneapolis. Um, huge, huge musician on the side, uh, member of, I don't know, I can't count all the bands here. Uh, many bands. Mega musician in many bands. Yeah. Uh, also a massive Doctor Who fan and a guy who, in his own words, can recite 90% of the movie RoboCop, which I remember being pretty awesome when I first saw it. Uh, what else, Carter? You used to work with him, didn't you? I did. And sadly, I wish we would have talked about RoboCop on the podcast because, uh, as you can imagine, if he can recite 90% of it, he's a pretty big fan. And there's a lot of rumors these days about uh, remaking RoboCop which I'm sure Christian has some very strong opinions about because it will be very hard to top Peter Weller as RoboCop. Right. And they, didn't they remake it with that guy, Joel Kinnaman? Oh, they did already remake it once, didn't they? Yeah. Dang. I feel like that might've been a, didn't even see it. Yeah. It might've been one of those. Um, but as Chris said, I have known Christian for many years. We worked together at Fallon back in the day. Um, we worked on several projects together, and I have to say he is one of the most creative people I know across many disciplines. Um, so we felt he would be a very worthy guest to get here on The Troublemakers. I think the, the, other, th- <coughs> Excuse me. the other thing we should mention is that his mic is fucking awesome. And Way so, better than our mics. <laughs> when you hear him... That's because he's a this, pro. When you hear him on this podcast... You will probably be overwhelmed by the uh, buttery sounds of his voice. Uh, <laughs> Mike was, I was like, very, very jealous. Um, all right, should we, should we do this? Let's do it. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So first question, we'll just get right into it. How does one get inspired or go about writing a rock rock opera based on Doctor Who? (laughs) So um, there are, I think, like, there are a lot of songwriters. I know a lot of people who write songs, right? I have a lot of friends who are musicians. And I think they tend to, you know, the people that we think of as songwriters, 
they tend to get inspired by things like their own personal life, right? So that like the vast majority of songs are about, hey, there was an experience I had either with a relationship or with my family or with whatever and or with my dad. Uh, and I'm going to sort of like craft that into a song. Um, and then I think there are people that are kind of inspired by big world events. So they want to kind of give their perspective. And for some reason, even though I've been like writing songs and being a musician for, I guess, 30 plus years, like since I was a teenager, for some reason, I was just never into those things. I think I always had this idea, like, look, my life's not that interesting. And my, and whatever tragedies I've had in my life are not as tragic as, as other people's. So I, I always have found that for me to write things that are good and are interesting, I have to kind of dig deeper into kind of, um, external things, right? Other people's stories or other people's kinds of um, situations. So in almost every band I've ever been in or every song I've written, they've largely been about, they've been inspired by sort of something external that I thought was interesting. And so I grew up as a giant Doctor Who nerd, um, right? I was just obsessed with it. I mean, to the point, like, I did the whole thing. We went to conventions with our friends. I was in the fan club. We had okay, costumes. When you, say, when you say you grew up with it, like, at what age were you watching Doctor oh, Who? Oh, so, like, probably from the time I was about 13 when it was on public television here um, in Minneapolis. Um, and then, you know, probably, you know, around... Age 14, 15, I started meeting people that were fan club people and or 15 or 16. I started going to, you know, a c conventions. There was like a couple in town. There was a big one in Chicago that we went to, um, one in St. Louis. So like the whole fandom thing, which, you know, it's weird because the fandom thing is really mainstream now, right? Like everyone's goes to Comic-Con and does all this stuff. But back then that kind of stuff was like really, really niche. So, so I had been into this for a very, very long time. And, you know, when I was a kid, like it, I did find it really inspiring. I mean, I was really, really sort of like way into it. Um, and, I'd always had this idea of essentially writing music about my favorite episode of that show um, for a whole bunch of reasons, because it was like a, the, the particular story was one that was like, a, I mean, it's considered by nerds like me to be probably the best ever um, episode. And this is when I say best ever, this is a show that's been on TV for 50 years. So there's quite a bit <laughs> right. to choose from, but most people think of this one as like, yes, this was kind of the pinnacle um, from a writing perspective and from a storytelling perspective. And it was this one that was really based on this almost kind of, uh, it had this very sort of Shakespearean vibe where like really none of the characters were like, they were all sort of like, um, they weren't really all just bad guys, but they were all, um, had very unusual motivate. There weren't really like pure good guys and bad guys and whatever. So anyways, right. this kind right. of epic story. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that then inspires me to write songs for the reasons that I said, which is like, I'm not interested in writing. And I know, and again, I'm not dissing on this because I have friends who write very personal music and they'll put out an album and you'll listen to it and you'll be like, yep, this is about your divorce. And I remember this is about that, <laughs> that time you got drunk and ended up in jail and blah, blah, blah. And I get that. But like, I, for me, like, I just can't get inspired by myself <laughs> in, in a weird way. Um, but I was inspired by like this TV show. Um, and, and what I realized is there was a way to craft um, stuff that was actually really heartfelt and meaningful to me um, from something that was as cheesy as a, you know, as an eighties um, sci-fi TV show.
And I had, because I was that big of a nerd, I had honestly internalized things like those characters, um, kind of inner monologues, <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> in this sort of like story. And so then it was really easy to kind of write, um, songs that I thought were interesting from the perspective of those, those characters, because again, growing up, I just thought they were more interesting than, than I was. So we will definitely come back to this because I think it's a, it's a really cool album and it's a really cool project just on its face that you did it. But at what point did you say, um, I'm going to write a rock opera about this, my favorite episode? When you saw it or it just, it just kind of stuck with you through the years or. Yeah, it actually happened. I do act, I do remember when it happened. So in the late nineties, I started a band. So I had been in a bunch of different bands. Um, and I, my, my sort of like everyone has a thing that they kind of go back to. Right. So some people grew up um, playing folk music and even though they play rock music, their, their real love is folk music. And my strangely, I have sort of an upside down thing, which is I grew up um, playing and learning and being immersed in electronic music mostly. Um, And so then when I went on to play in like rock bands or, you know, like for a while in the nineties, I was in this basically kind of, almost like goth folk band, sort of an acoustic um, band. My true love from my childhood was actually synthesizers and, um, and kind of electronics and, and these kinds of things. So in the late nineties, I decided I'm going to get back into that and I'm going to start this new project. And I started this new band. It's the band where actually my now wife, we met um, more or less playing in that band. I mean, I knew her, but I invited her into the band and that's kind of how we, we got to know each other and a few other friends. And that was the, the first time that I started actually digging into uh, sort of pop culture and sci-fi as a, as a source for writing, uh, for writing music. And it was at that time when, as I'm writing this song that was based on the Douglas Adams book, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I, I, that's when the idea popped in like, oh, you know, what'd be cool is I should just write a whole album of uh, songs about Doctor Who. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Um, and so that was in the 90s when you thought so that. So that was in the late 90s. I, actually, probably around the time I first had the idea was when we were making our sort of second record. It was actually our first full-length record, right? So it was like 2000, 2001. Um, and I actually did sit down and start to write it. Um, and uh, and so what happened was I only finished one and a half songs and then like a sort of a sketch of lyrics for a third one. But the first one was a really, really cool song. So we actually recorded it on the on our full-length album with this band that I did back in 2001. So that same song is on the new album as well because it was always intended to be the opening song of something much bigger. So th- I think this is just one of those examples of like you have an idea, you envision it, and you really just don't get it done, but you got <laughs> a piece of it done. Um, and so we wrote this one song, we put it on the album, um, you know, it was, it was a really, really cool song. And then my assumption was, oh, that's as much of that as I'm ever going to do. Right. Like I had the idea, um, but at least I have this one song that was basically inspired by literally the opening scene of this, of this episode. And it was always meant to be a part of something, um, bigger. So anyway, so the decision was made, you know, like that long, you know, almost 20 years ago or God, yeah, time flies. Um, but however long ago that was, um, the, the idea. Um, and then, 
you know, occasionally I would either think about it or I would sort of joke about it. Um, but the funny thing, what, what actually happened, the story behind how um, I picked it up again was there's these guys who run, speaking of podcasts, a there are people local here in Minneapolis who run a, um, a podcast specifically about classic old Doctor Who episodes. Um, and we have mutual friends and they just said, hey, we know you have this band, you write sci-fi stuff. We know you're like a Doctor Who fan. Like, will you come on our show? Because they just, you know, they're just like, hey, it would be fun. So I did it. And in the course of the conversation, I happened to let it leak that I had thought about <laughs> doing this like years ago. So of course these guys like me, they're old school nerds, like from the eighties and they all were looking at me like you would be insane not to do that. Right. Not to finish that project. Like, please, please uh, sort of do it. So, so then I sat on it again for another six months. And then finally I was like, actually those guys are right. Like that was dumb. That's unfinished business. That's unfinished creative business that I have because I had a, a an image in my mind of what it should be. Um, and I just never actually put pen to paper, um, you know, to use a mixed, a mixed creative metaphor, um, <laughs> to do it. Um, so anyway, so it's sort of this three stage thing of like, yep, I thought about it like decades ago, um, sat on it, um, did one bit of it, sat on it, um, kind of got re-inspired. And then finally at some point just committed to like, this is the thing I'm just going to do. And then I just hammered hammered on it for you know six to nine months until it was until it was done that's great that's amazing so um since you brought up decades ago we are going to go back um you you've lived in minneapolis a long time but you were born in mobile alabama i believe that's correct yep um at what point did you feel or become aware that you enjoyed creating or that you thought of yourself as a creative person? I'm assuming a lot of times we ask our guests, you know, do you think of yourself as a creative person? I know what your answer will be. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So it's sort of like the when, when, or when did that become a thing? Yeah. For like, it's interesting to hear when, when people had that realization or that thought. Yeah. Okay. So this, this is interesting because, um, I, I talk about this a lot when I talk about, um, other people who have kids about parenting um, mm-hmm. because as you like, I know you Carter know this, but like, you know, we we're raising like incredibly creative kids, right? So like my oldest who is a senior in high school has already produced two records of his own and he plays in like three different bands and he's a songwriter and he's like doing all this stuff that it took me until really like my, which late is tw- just late twenties. Amazing by the way. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is like they have access to tools and technology that they didn't have. But the key thing was that when I was growing up, um, even in my family, which was kind of a creative family, there was still this divide between like creativity is a thing you need, but it's not a thing that you pursue as a vocation. You know what I mean? Like there there was always that thing of like, like my uncle was actually a fairly well-known a music professor and and music academic and so like on my dad's side of the family where he where he was from was always like well if you're gonna you know do music like you need to go and sort of study it academically this can't be you know the, the, your your pursuit is one of of um kind of legitimized so there's this sense of like somehow creativity needs to be legitimized um right otherwise it's just sort of like a pastime so ironically like i grew up in one of those houses where it's like 
no, you should take piano lessons and you should do whatever. But then the minute you start saying like, well, now I'm going to form this band. And by the way, I might not go to college right away because we're like (laughs) making an album. Then that's when it's like, no, that hits the fan, right? Like that's too far. You've gone too far because creativity is cool, but it's not like a job. And so, so I definitely started realizing, you know, creativity back well again so here's it yeah here's where it 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 um it all comes around because where i really first started to recognize um creativity and like the power of it is when i got into sci-fi fandom doctor who and other things was also when i started like drawing and painting for the first time and i started making sort of primitive fan art and i was like really actually for a kid pretty good at it and i got really really um sort of into it and so i think it was probably around those like but it was again it's so funny how now i'm saying this out loud how these things just um come back in your life it was science fiction that inspired me to become an artist and similarly uh, to be a musician. Right. Um, and we were, you know, discovering like punk rock and this kind of like DIY aesthetic. Um, and everything sort of seemed possible. Like all you needed was like a drum machine and a guitar and one microphone. And you could like make stuff like Steve Albini was making. Cause that's basically what he was doing. Right. Um, so anyway, so I think it was around then, but it was always this weird kind of like cultural struggle between like, is creativity really a thing that you can, kind of make a life out of, or is it really a thing that you're supposed to do on the side because it makes you a a holistic person, which was more, I think the attitude of like our family at large. Well, that right there is, is the crux of this podcast because we're trying to get at, you know, a, what is creativity? Obviously it's a tool, a superpower, whatever you want to call it, but it can also be um, a career and applied in, you know, numerous different ways. So how in your household, as you were growing up, how did you reconcile that? Well, I mean, I, I, I sort of reconciled it by, so the, the, the first way I reconciled it was, um, I convinced my dad like, well, okay, but how about I, what if I went legitimately to art school? Right. Cause I, I think that's honestly, the reason why a lot of, I'm not saying this to hate on anyone who has gone to art school because I, I didn't, but, but, or to hate on art schools, but a, one of the reasons why they exist is so that, uh, you know, kids who are creative can convince their parents that they're actually pursuing it with some degree of quote seriousness. Right. And that, because it's so easy for people, especially non-creative people or for people who are creative sort of on the side to see creativity as frivolous. And that's the, that's the, that's the disappointing thing. It's like you, you see things like mathematics as critical and you see things like creativity as, um, as frivolous, but in your day-to-day life and like in all of us, I mean, I know we all work in creative jobs, so it's a little bit different, but even when you go out to corporate America, what's the thing you use more every day, math or creativity, right? I mean, right. yeah, people use what they learned in math, but mostly the computers are doing that right now, right? And so it's actually the things that we um, that sort of culture and like our parents kind of baby boomer culture valued 
um, and said, these are the things you need to be, be paying attention to. And we would always jokingly say, I'm never going to use this. It turns out that was true, right? It was the, st- the stuff that they didn't want you to pay attention to was the stuff that you use every day, which is like nonlinear thinking and all these things, mostly the stuff that you learned in art class when, you know, in between like smoking cigarettes out the back or whatever with the, with the <laughs> art class dirt balls, um, you were actually learning like the life lessons that were going to um, actually affect your career much more. And so there was just no... Anyway, I think I've wandered off topic, but like there was just no recognition of that, right? Um, um, back back then, because it was not seen as as a profession, and even so. Anyway, so to, to to go back to now, I remember what your question was. So to go back to that, like <laughs> I convinced my I convinced my parents because at least they had because we had like a a, a, a world famous music professor uh, in the family. It was always kind of like, well, you can pursue these things if you pursue them, then as an as an academic or like from an academic perspective. So I convinced them like, okay, well then maybe I'll go to art school and like, that'd be cool. And, um, and then, and then you get the speech like, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, commercial art, you know, that's a legitimate, that's a legitimate <laughs> business, <laughs> you know, like commercial art is a legitimate business. Well, so I didn't actually end up making it because I did exactly what I said. I, I moved out and I started a band and then we just got totally focused on like making music and doing all that stuff. And I actually never went back. Right. I never so went were back, you back in to Minneapolis at that time? Yeah, this was in this was in okay. Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so so I think it was like um, we yeah, it was always just you, you find yourself. It's just strange that you have to um, you find yourself having to justify um, a choice of a creative um, career because people who aren't creative think that those kinds of jobs are these things where it's like one in the million. You know, it's like I might as well right. have been telling like when I first told my dad like oh yeah. I'm gonna, work in uh work in advertising it was kind of like that was like like i might as well have been saying like well i'm gonna pin my whole hopes on the fact that i might have a hit record you know because (laughs) it just seems so foreign that like that's a thing that you could get paid for um and the perception was like oh but but because there's no um objective scales of like who's good at it and who's not therefore it's just a crapshoot right so anyway it's just basically a lack of understanding of even what creativity is and how it translates into um, any kind of like value that you would bring to the world. So when you decided not to go to art school and you started the band, was your intent at the time to, I'm just going to be in a band and we're going to, you know, we're going to get famous and do the tours and all that stuff. Or what, do you remember what your thinking was at that point? Yeah. I mean, everyone who's ever started a band at one point, even if briefly, has this has the conceit <laughs> that at some point someone's gonna discover you i mean at least i think we were at least practical about it which was like hey you know there's bands out there touring that are making like what would be the equivalent of a of a um, an entry-level salary job and that's all we care about right like as long as you can do that if i can if i can make as much um playing music as i could make working at um arby's which i did work at at the time um then that would be worth it, right? Because you'd just be doing something you love and you'd still have the same uh, lifestyle um, that you that you have. So anyway, so I, th- I think, yeah, we did for brief moments have that um, that totally unrealistic expectation that, but again, it wasn't totally unrealistic. We weren't trying to be superstars. We were just trying to be, uh, turn art into something that could um, help us survive, right? Not not necessarily thrive, but just do better than we were than we were doing. 
What kind what kind of material were you using to write your songs back then, if not prior to the Doctor Who era? Um, so the first, um, this is actually a, an interesting story. So the first band I was ever in, my friend and I, um, we were high school buddies. We were all into the same music, which was mostly sort of what you'd think of as, I don't know what we called it then, but now you'd probably call it sort of like gothic pop. Like it was the cure. Um, it, it was kind of the early, like mostly British kind of quote alternative bands. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. echo and the bunny men sort of like late new wave stuff was like, was like our thing. The cure. We were really into like all the four AD record stuff, uh, Cocteau twins right. and things like that. Right. And, um, and this was actually before the shoegaze era that kind of, I think brought all that stuff a little <laughs> bit into the mainstream, but, but it was still this idea of like this kind of ethereal, like whatever. So, um, so we, um, so we graduated high school in 1988 and a month after graduating, we got our first apartment. Cause we're like, we grew, we went to high school and we grew up in Bloomington, West Bloomington, Minnesota. Um, which if you're not from here, you can't necessarily appreciate, but it's like the ultimate suburb, right? It's just, it's a <laughs> suburb. It's where the mall of America is now, although that it didn't exist back then. But, um, so it was like as soon as we were old enough and graduated from high school, literally a month later, we went to uptown Minneapolis, which was where like the hip stuff was happening and got our first apartment. And then the other thing we did was we bought our first synthesizer and the keyboard that we bought for which we had to go into debt to my friend's brother <laughs> for who <laughs> was like actually literally he was an he was a banker he he had just got his first job in banking and so he was also kind of like loan sharking to us at the time <laughs> and he's like yeah I'll, I'll lend you the money but here you got to pay me interest and all this stuff so it was very very uh, officially it was very official and weird but but there was a thing that happened that year which was there was a keyboard that came out that Korg made called the M1 and it was the first ever keyboard that had built into it not just a synthesizer that you play but a, a multi-track sequencer so that you could record parts and patterns and arrange them into songs multi-track stuff and also a drum machine so previously this was three separate pieces of equipment right that you would have to tie together with midi and you'd have a room full of of cables and it was very very um expensive so this was actually the first of what what was called a workstation keyboards so it was like an all-in-one thing every other than like singing over it or playing other instruments it did everything that you could possibly want um and it just happened to come out the year that we were um ready to to kind of do this so we're like well this is what we need right it's a it's a shit ton of money in fact here here's a funny story about how the world has changed so we paid probably uh we probably paid like twenty five hundred dollars for that keyboard right when it was brand new it was over two thousand dollars so now just uh six months ago that exact same keyboard a hundred percent the exact same thing has been released as an app for the iPad for $19.99 by Korg. Korg actually put all the, all the, basically they modeled all the electronics and all the interfaces and created a software version that's now 20 bucks. Um, so, but anyway, so like part of it was like 2,500 bucks for, uh, some kids just out of high school in 1988 was not cheap. No, no. We, and like I said, we went into debt to my friend's loan shark <laughs> brother to, to like, to do it. Right. Um, and again, we were all working like, you know, 
minimum wage jobs, basically, like in fast food or doing whatever, you know, whatever. But anyway, we, we did make it through and we did eventually kind of pay the thing off. And we, you know, we sort of did it, did it in the, in the, in the right way. Um, but point was, it was one of those moments where, um, technology, um, cause this has always been an important thing to me is like technology was there right at the time where we were ready to kind of do something creatively, right. There was, there was mm-hmm. sort of technology that could support it. Um, and I've kind of found that to be a thing throughout. So one of the other reasons set aside all the personal reasons why I made this last record, the doctor who thing, the actual reason why I started doing it or started thinking about it again is because I was looking around at all this stuff. And I look at my iPad and I was like, there are apps sitting on my iPad that have the kind of power that only an extremely, extremely rich studio person had back then when we were like really getting into this. And I kept thinking if my 19 year old self could flash forward and look at me sitting with all of this um, creative power sitting on this device that I'm holding in my hand and not using it. Like I would punch myself, right? Like I would be so (laughs) mad because we literally, like I said, we would scrimp and save money to buy stuff like, like back in the day, those keyboards to get new sounds on them. You had to buy these like giant um, plug-in ROM cards that had, that had different patches and different sounds on them. And each one of those was like $50, right? So you would save up all your money. And now you just go on the internet and you can download a thousand sounds for free, right? For, for your thing. And so, so the idea that we worked so, so hard to expand our creative palette um, that now are the older versions of ourselves are just sitting with all this power, like not doing anything with it. Um, I felt like was kind of an insult to my younger uh, creative self and, and all of our friends and the way that we, that we did it. So, so anyway, so I think technology sometimes like being in the right place at the right time in terms of what's possible technology, technologically, um, and then having that align with what your, your idea of what it is you want to make Um is, you know, I think what, what drove us like back then. And I think, um, hopefully still does drive what I do. Well, and you mentioned it earlier with, with both of your kids who, uh, you know, are making their own albums now. One is 17 and how old's the other one? 12. Yeah. 12. Yeah. And he's already got his own music published yeah. on, oh, yeah. on the web. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> all because no. of the technology and it's the same in filmmaking too. Right. I mean, yeah, completely. You can go yeah. out and make a feature film or a, TV series on your iPhone. Yeah. Well, I mean, so like my, our, our oldest kid, um, he's, he made, he's making this album, right? He doesn't let us hear any of it. So this is not like us kind of like shadow producing, like what he's doing. He just goes in the basement with friends and does it. So not only did he make this amazing song, but, um, but they, he and his friends made this video with it. Um, right. And the video looks like it's like way better quality than anything we made that we used to pay people who are like, I make music (laughs) videos right to do back in the nineties because they, they have the cameras and they, God knows they probably shot it on somebody's phone. Um, but it looks great and it's edited great. And they understand how to like cut edits to the beat and do, you know, do all this stuff that was like people were getting paid six figure salaries to do, um, at studios, you know, back, back then. Um, and now it's just like, oh yeah, we, that's just, we grew up with that. Right. So we just know how to do it. Um, and I think that's, so I, I personally find that kind of inspiring and that's again, what gets, 
me off my lazy ass is like, look, all the stuff that you used to have to work so hard to do is so easy to do now. So why aren't you doing it? You know? Right. I love the concept of leveraging your, your, your old self against your new self to make your new self better, more active. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I try not to be like, cause I think always, you know, looking at your old self can also be a negative thing or for a lot of people, it's sort of like looking in the past. So I do know, I do know a lot of people who, who gave up making music. If I'm being totally honest, right. They, they were doing it because, um, so maybe for lots of different reasons, like some of them were just doing it cause they, they played guitar to get laid and then they, and then they hooked up and they got married and they moved, um, out to the far, suburbs and there was no need for them to kind of pursue it which tells me that they weren't actually kind of creative people at heart do you know what i mean like they were they were doing a pursuit but there was kind of like a like a, a different reason then there are other people who are passionately creative who i mean if there's no really nice way to say it they sort of peaked too early right they they people loved them or that like they were they i know people who were like filling filling first avenue or at least filling the small clubs and like you know getting all this attention and they had cultivated a sort of an audience for themselves that was largely based on a time and place right we're we're all college kids we're having these same experiences and this is part of that experience and then they struggle to kind of maintain their relevance but they're not willing to sort of change or adapt in order to create um, new relevance for themselves. So I think some, in some cases, like looking back on your previous self can be destructive. Cause I do know a lot of people who le- legitimately might look back at their um, younger selves and, and just be like, what the hell happened? You know, <laughs> how did I, how did I lose my, the mojo that I had when I was, you know, um, when I was younger, but I think all the people that I know that are like, what's weird is music specifically. I, I shit you not is like, we think of it as this game where it's like, you got to come out strong and like peak and, you know, like, like uh, get really famous. But what's funny is most of the people I know that are the true artists are just the people who are still around. Because when we all started, we all had all these contemporaries that were doing stuff. And I literally, I could count on one hand, how many people that were in the bands that were in our circle and who we used to play shows with a lot. Um, who's still out there doing stuff and who's like releasing new things and who's out there playing um, in some capacity other than, Hey, we got our old band from 15 years ago back together. You know, you guys should come down to some local shitty bar and (laughs) see us play stuff that you used to like to watch us, but you know what I mean? Um, So, so I think, um, yeah. Anyway, I think looking back is like, can be inspiring, but only in the sense that, that if it sort of pushes you forward or it continues to tap into your creative impulse, um, because otherwise I feel like, um, you know, some people just like, they don't, they don't continue to evolve or adapt or sort of move forward. No, it's cool. But I, I think like you're always as a creative person, you, you have times when you're motivated and times when you're not. And it seems kind of funny. I just thought the, the way you thought of it was kind of a funny way to, kind of tap into some motivation just the fact yeah. that you're like yes yeah. this thing that i could have paid twenty five hundred dollars for it's sitting here in front of me on my ipad i i could be doing you know whatever i want i mean people worship um you know people worship stuff that um like george martin did with the beatles and stuff like that it's like those guys had an eight track tape player right 
my computer, right. <laughs> I can record 50 tracks of audio of, and play them back. Basically, the processing power of my computer allows me to play 50 tracks. So that's also how I think about it. It's like I think about myself, and then I also think about other people. Like, what would George Martin have done with this, right? And that's actually why I still love, like, crazy um, modern Music where like to, to some people of my age, like some types of modern music are not even recognizable as music, but it's because they grew up with these tools that they've been using in these totally unexpected, the ways that like us older people would not use them. Um, and they've created entirely new sounds and genres and stuff like that. And, and I get why some people get prickly, like, yeah, give me, I mean, there's literally like Facebook groups, which are unfortunately run by gen xers like me that are really dedicated to this idea of like you know like wow you know what happened to the 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 you know what happened to great guitar solos or whatever you know what i mean it's like like nobody plays like great guitar solos anymore yeah that's that's right because they have tools other than the guitar and they're interested in creating things that aren't just on the guitar and nobody worships the guitar in the way that they used to not to say it's bad it's just not the only thing right it used to be the only thing it used to be the only way that you could make unusual sounds was with your guitar and your amp Um, and people did a lot of creative stuff with that but now there are hundreds of different ways to make really really interesting sounds so why should we continue to kind of worship the the thing just because we grew up with it and we think that that should be the most important thing. Right. So, so I think like, yeah, he always thinking about it from the context of like, um, what's important, what was important then. And what was, what's important now is, I don't know. That's kind of how I look at it. You and I, you and I met at an advertising agency here in town. And I'm curious what the journey was from you got out of high school and you're trying to get a band or you got a band going, you, you were in a band, several yeah. bands. Yeah. And then, yeah. then you ended up in advertising. So this is a good story um, <laughs> because it actually directly relates to, no, it relates to the, the I'm, I'm going to back up. Cause I like to tell, I like to tell stories from, from the beginning. Um, so what's interesting is um, I've been asked um, a couple times to give presentations to students, right. Where they're like, we want you to come talk to students about like, a career path and like, how did you get into this business? And you know, blah, blah, blah. So my first question back to them is I'm willing to do that, but I just want to make it a hundred percent clear that in this, um, in this speech, I'm going to have to say that I didn't go to college. Is that cool with you? Right. Because some of them are like high school guidance counselors or whatever, right. Who are asking me to do this. And I know no high school guidance counselor would have ever put someone in front of me as a kid that said, Oh, I'm, I have a very successful life and I didn't go to college. Um, so, so I did have a high school here because I knew someone there say, will you come in and do this? And I, and I had this conversation and like, yeah, just, just, um, sort of say whatever you want. So in preparation to this, um, I was thinking about this idea of like, um, career paths, right. And how you kind of get to get to a, a career path. And I came across this phrase and this concept that I thought was really interesting um, that related to the way millennials think about um, career paths and sort of development. And the phrase they used was called planned happenstance. And the idea behind planned happenstance is in the old days, like when, when we grew up or even more specifically when our parents grew up, you would decide what you wanted to be when you grew up. 
right? You would go to school, you would study that, you would apprentice, you would climb the ladder, and then eventually you would be that thing, right? And it was a sort of a, a very um, linear path. The idea of planned happenstance is pursue everything that you are passionate about um, with absolute, you know, just devotion. Um, make as many connections as you can across many, many different kinds of things. And one day, the kind of combination of what you've been prepared for, plus the opportunity, plus the connections you've made, will come together. And that will be sort of where you ended up. So when I read about this, I was like, Jesus, I just made sense of my entire life. (laughs) Because (laughs) what I realized was that I had been, that that is actually exactly what I had done, which is, whether my job was like a literal fast food job or retail job or whether it was creative or whether it was whatever it was or, or a technology thing. My whole thing was just like, get as deep into it as you can. Cause you never know when these skills are going to be useful. Right. And, and, and when they're going to, and when they're going to, um, and when these connections are going to come in useful. So flash forward, this is, I, I, <laughs> I, not to quote Bill Cosby, but I told you that story to tell you this one. So, um, so that was the, um, uh, so to flash forward to how I ended up at Fallon, um, and I was relaying this story to these high school students, the way I ended up there was even though I had been um, doing things like interactive design and programming, and I was like in this digital space, it was actually rock and roll connections that got me the job at Fallon. And what, what happened was, we had a friend um, who's still a very um, active um, uh, singer, songwriter, musician, Mason Jennings, who's from Minneapolis here. I love um, Mason Jennings. Yeah. Well, so he um, he was a friend of ours, and my friend was his manager. My friend had been previously an A&R guy at Warner Brothers, had basically retired and gotten disillusioned with the big industry. But basically semi-discovered Mason. Like he and I would go see Mason play to five people at the 400 bar, like on a Thursday (laughs) night, right before he was anybody. And so Bruce took him on as a, uh, my friend Bruce took him on as a, as a, as a project. Right. And and obviously, as you know, he was very successful in kind of like getting him into the, the mainstream and really getting his career started. So one of the things, um, because Bruce and I were friends, we were always trying to cook up like weird ideas. And Bruce came to me and said, Hey, I know you do like this digital stuff. So I had this idea that instead of doing like just crappy show posters, what if we did like these animated things that we could send out as emails that would be the, like these little animated cartoons that would like sort of promote um, the show. And I was like, Oh shit. Yeah, that's easy. I do flash animation and I know how to do that. Um, and so we started this whole thing that actually was one of, one of the early uh, sort of promotional kind of gimmicks, if you will, that, that he used um, to get him out there, which is he and I would cook up some weird animation. It would basically be like an animated poster, you know, like early kind of motion design, right? It was just like typography. And sometimes we would have like little animated things and these would go out to people who were on the mailing list. Well, so the drummer in his band was, um, Chris Stocksmith, who also worked with us at Fallon, um, who was also best friends with Mark Sandow, who ran the interactive group, who was on the Mason Jennings mailing list. So the reason I got the job there was because he was on that mailing list and went to Chris and said, who's the guy that does your animated emails? Because we need people like that um, in our group. So, and I, and I, and I told this to these students because like Fallon was the kind of place where with my resume and frankly, with my total lack of formal education, I could never, ever have gotten in the front door. 
right? I never gotten in the front door there. They would not have even um, taken my call. But because I demonstrated that I knew something that they didn't know about a particular piece of technology and how to use it creatively, and they recognized that that was a need, um, they just, you know, scooted me in through the back door, right? As a, as a, um, as a digital kind of production artist. Um, and then just again, to continue the planned happenstance story in the seven years that I was there, that's where I met my three current business partners. And we all, you know, one of whom was when I started there, the president of the agency, right. And I was like a scrub coming in the back door with like no college education. Um, and it was all this idea of, of planned happenstance, which is like, you just bring your best self to everything you do. Um, and you create great relationships with other creative people and you just do good work. Um, and then you look for opportunities where you can take that from one, um, sort of place, um, to another. So anyway, I just, I, I love that idea of planned happenstance and how, um, how specifically that affects creative people, because I do meet, you know, and I'm sure you do too, but I don't know if you do, but you know, at various times we all meet with like students who are like, well, I mean, I'm really focused on this and I'm studying to be this. And this is what my portfolio is focused on. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, you know, like you, you, the chances <laughs> of you getting that job that you want are so small, but the chance of you getting a really, really interesting job that allows you to apply your creativity in a way that you hadn't um, anticipated are really high. So let go, right? Let go of that idea of like, this is what I want to be when I grow up and just say, I want to be a creative person and I want to apply, you know, uh, my creativity in whatever way anyone is willing to, you know, pay me to do, frankly. I think that's such a great um, idea and phrase, especially in this day and age when, you know, as a parent uh, and, and you're a parent and your oldest is going to be graduating high school. Mine is a senior. Ford's uh, are getting close as well. Yeah. You know, as a parent, you think yeah. you think about these exact same things and like, you know, how do you guide them down that path? And and I'm in complete agreement. I basically tell my kids, you know, some version of that, you know, whenever we have these kinds of conversations. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just like just 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 do because there's that adage, which, again, I hate because I hate things that are just very black and white where it's like, you know, do what you love. You know, there's always like these posters. Usually it's like a big mural on the side of the building. You know, do, do what you love. It's like, well, no, actually, sometimes you have to do things that you don't love, but you have to work hard at them because they're going to teach you something valuable, a valuable skill that's going to come into play when you are pursuing what you do love. Right. So, um, so that, that idea of like, it's all sort of about passion and like roses and just do, do what you're passionate about. It's like, no, actually sometimes you have to suffer, but that suffering will pay off in a thing that then allows you to do that fulfilling stuff, um, later when the, when the time is right, because you'll have that combination of sort of attitude and skills, um, that are necessary to do it. It's all, it's all really planned happenstance. It's just the acknowledgement of that. I think yeah. some people have a hard time going, but wait, I have an outline. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I have a plan. I have a coming plan. Um, let's talk about, you know, obviously you're a creative person in the arts, uh, musically as, I mean, we could go into, you know, illustration and painting too, but let's talk about, um, you know, you mentioned, you met your co-founders at Fallon. Yeah. Um, you guys started a, um, how do you define Zeus Jones actually? 
I mean, we always tried to stay away from the word um, agency, but I mean, that's kind of what, what it is. But in a lot of ways, it actually functions a little bit more like a consultancy than an agency. But yeah, I, right. I think we, we are a creative company, right? And a, and, a right. and a design and strategy company. So aside from you know the, the creative projects that you guys get involved with, with brands on a day-to-day basis, how do you, um, I think it'd be interesting to talk about how do you infuse creativity into the running of your company? Yeah. Okay. So that's a, that's an interesting question. So one of the things that, um, that we do, and this, I believe is like a, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm just trying to sort of form my thought here, how to, how to express it. So one of the things I think that creativity is, um, or a way to think about what creativity is, is that it tends to live in these kind of gray spaces, right? So anything that can really be quantified in a kind of a black and white way, um, that's not really, it doesn't require creativity, right? If you can definitely say like, this is true, this is true, or this, this works, this doesn't, um, that's more science, um, than, than creativity. Um, and so I think one of the hallmarks of the way that we run our business is that we, one of, one of the adages that we've tried to pass on to people who work there is this idea of get comfortable being uncomfortable because in a lot of places like organizations, companies, businesses, the whole idea is like, there's this leadership group that says, this is what we're doing. And we want you to come along and they're making decisions for you so that you as an employee don't actually have to deal with the difficult choices between, well, why are we doing this or doing this? You're just waiting for someone to kind of like tell you what to do. And I think like in the world today, um, there are so many questions that are just not really easily answered. Right. So, so people will be like, um, you know, so you guys, uh, have a totally flat hierarchy. It's like, well, totally flat. I wouldn't say that. Right. But I wouldn't say that we have much of one and it kind of exists in this space, um, in between those two things. So, so it's not like we have these philosophies of like, I really hate these things that are coming out now where it's like open plan offices, you know, are shit, right? And this is the whole thing. It's like everyone <laughs> wants to be on one side of this issue or the other. And it's like, no, we've always had an open plan office, but we also have other kinds of spaces to do other kinds of work. Why is it so hard to just say, you know, there are aspects of this that are great and aspects of it that aren't. Everyone has to just pile on because they want to make um, like the running of a business into something. That's well, very everyone cool. also needs to compartmentalize so that they can get their minds around things. Yeah, exactly. I and, know what this is. Oh yes. It's in this yeah, box over here. Exactly. Right. So, so what I would say is like, we have a lot of conversations around this idea of, you know what, actually, you know, most of what we spend our time on is acknowledging the, the, um, inherent, um, tensions between running a business, right? Do you know what I mean? Like, like you have to, you have to think about like, okay, well, there's things you do for like, um, sort of safety and security. And then there's things that you do for, you know, right. Um, and what most companies do is they sit down and they're like, we need to decide what our perspective is on this. Um, and what we try desperately to do is always keep our perspectives open on that. So at any given time, depending on how things are working, we may say, yeah, actually, we do need a little bit more structure in this area. And then in, at a different time, we may say, actually, we need to go back a little bit more to like empowering, you know, letting people be a little bit more, uh, frankly, just expecting people to be like a little bit more um, sort of self starter. So, so to me, uh, the creative run, the, 
the where where a business is that's run creatively is one where you're not subscribing to hard and fast rules. And again, I frankly, again, I, I don't, I'm not trying to, I'm not saying anything against anyone in particular. But again, when I worked at at Fallon at our at our previous job, I'll just I'll just name name names, right? <laughs> um, my observation there was. When I started there, I started there in 1999, and that place was at the absolute pinnacle of like everybody loved us. Um, we could do no wrong, right? We really had it figured out. We like busted all the myths around like you don't even have to be from New York. You can be from the Midwest, and you can attract talent. And you can do, do this great work, right? And then, again, my observation over the, the subsequent years was as the world changed around the company – the company and especially the company leadership actually just doubled down on this idea that was like, wait, we had this figured out, right? Don't we know how to do this in a way that other people hadn't figured out. So we just need to keep doing it our way, right? Even when all the evidence presented to them was like, actually your way does not work anymore. Right. Um, and then, and then that's not really the way of the future. So I think having a willingness to be like, no, we are not going to say, that this is how we do things, right? We're not, we're not going to have a, a formula that says, this is how we do things here. There is no, we like to say this to people, there is no Zeus Jones way. So when people get in a meeting and be like, well, this doesn't feel like the Zeus Jones way. There is not a Zeus Jones way. There are values and beliefs that we hold dear and kind of, you know, beliefs about the world and beliefs about how, you know, things pr should probably be done. But there are no hard and fast rules because there are no, hard and fast rules out there in the world, right? Um, as, as opportunities come out. So, so, so anyway, so that was again, another long explanation, but I think that idea of being willing to be uncomfortable and not being automatically going to this idea of like, well, there's a problem there and we have to solve it. Sometimes there's a problem there and we just have to get comfortable with the fact that that's a problem that we will never really fully solve. Um, and we need to kind of work around it. And that's what, to me, the creativity in running a business is is about. I would imagine that there have been employees that you've hired over the years that probably didn't fit in too well. Sure, yeah. Because you yeah. definitely have to be a certain kind of person to yeah. operate in an environment like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, for the most part, it does work out because we do quite a lot. You know, we we're embarrassingly slow to hire people, right? Because we kind of try and check these things out. Right. And, and, and there's a whole kind of like um, process around that, but yes, it does happen. And actually there have been, I, I, I have for sure, I can think of two different people that I did actually scare off in the interview stage because they were, <laughs> they were project managers, right? And project managers are all about process and about, you know, kind of like how they, cause they manage processes. That's what they do. And so I said, look, we do not have a formal project management methodology here. We don't use any particular piece of software. We don't use any particular blah, blah, blah. And like those people, like they never called again, right? Like they just, <laughs> they just, they disappear because they realize, you know, because that, that's the thing is like, if you're doing something, you have to accept that um, it won't be for everybody, right? And it won't be for everybody from a client perspective too. We've gone into meetings with clients and so here's what we do and here's how we work. And, you know, Luckily, we have a pretty good hit rate. About 75% of them are like, holy shit, you guys are doing something different and that's what I want. But then there's 25%. It's like, I don't even understand what you do. So no way am I paying you money to do whatever it is that you say you're doing because, that, because I, I want these firm answers, right? And I want what the, 
what the big um, strategy consultancies give me, which is a giant process, right? And a, and a um, sort of a predictable um, outcome. Um, and in many cases, we're not willing to say that that's what we're going to do, right? Um, and so, uh, and that's fine, right? You, you need to, like I said, a lot of, of creativity is also finding people who enable your creativity, um, and who kind of share the, the passion for it. Um, so if they don't, you're just going to be running up against a, a wall the whole time. That's yeah. I think it's really good. So we also have, um, that's a lot of, uh, great stories about a lot of great things, um, that you've been involved with so far. Cause I have a feeling you're going to keep going for quite a long time, <laughs> uh, creating stuff. Um, we have, we, we sort of have some, uh, hard and fast questions that we like to ask people to kind of okay. get a, a gauge on, you know, how they wrangle their creativity, that kind of stuff. Sure. Okay. <laughs> so what, um, what is the one thing or few things, um, that you need to create slash write slash start a project? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I, I know a lot of people are, um, let me, let me, let me think about that. I mean, do you, do you doodle in a notebook and write ideas down? Do you? Yeah, I think, um, there, there's almost, um, to me, there's almost no one way. So the, and, and again, this is just me. I think some people have kind of like those, those mediums or those things that really sort of speak to them, whether they be words or pictures or design or, or things like that. And because I've actually kind of been more of a crappy dabbler in all of those things, I try to use different sort of entry points, right? So when I get stuck, um, when I get stuck writing things, um, with words, um, I will move to laying them out visually, right. Or uh, like in songwriting, frankly, there's songs I've started where it's like, you know, the way like uh, more modern artists do it, which is it starts with a beat and then you figure out what to do after it. Um, and then there's other ones. that's more of a traditional songwriting thing where you'll start with a phrase or a word or a, or a sort of a thought or a story that you want to tell. Um, so for me, it's always like finding whichever thing is most, um, uh, is most motivating for you at that, at that time. And especially if one isn't working, uh, you, kind of move on to the, I'm also a big fan of the oblique strategies, as you can probably tell by the way I talk about this, of just like, just move on to the next thing and like, figure out a, figure out a different approach. I just got a box of these cards labeled oblique strategies. Yes. Those are great. Fascinating. They are great. Anything on cards is great, but these are particularly fascinating. They are gen that no, they are genuinely, um, if you truly absorb that kind of like not the nonlinear thinking, um, implied with those, it really is, um, it really is useful as a tool. Speaking of tools, what is your favorite tool to create with? Uh, my absolute, okay, again, across everything, cause I, I create in a lot of uh, different ways, but my absolute favorite tool to create with is a piece of software called Ableton live. It is the music production software that also I've indoctrinated my two kids into, and they do <laughs> amazing stuff with it as well. And, um, what's interesting about it is like everyone has kind of their favorite music production tool. So for instance, a lot of people that are grew up, um, in more traditional studio environments are really into pro tools because pro tools that, you know, you'll just hear people, pro tools, pro tools, pro tools, um, because pro tools really works 
is modeled after kind of the workflow that you would go through in like an old sort of um, traditional studio. Um, Ableton was one of those weird things where the minute, um, and they're on version 10 now, but the minute like I first came into it, which was version two, I was like, this piece of software works like my brain works. So the way that I construct uh, music and layers of music and, and beats and loops and arrangements is, was actually the exact way that this piece of software is laid out. So I think again, for everyone, it's kind of like, you got to find your tool. But for me, this was a thing where from the moment I first used it, it was the most intuitive thing um, because it was clearly built by someone who thought about music and musical arrangements um, in the same way that I thought about them. Um, and it's like they built it for me. So it is hands down um, my favorite um, creative tool for sure. Do you have a routine? Do you have some part of your workflow that you never, never vary from or? No, I, I don't think so. The only bit of routine um, is that I do sometimes do is and I had to do this when I was making that last record is because I've got all these things. Cause I'm, you know, running a business and have a family is sometimes I have to do things like I'm going to carve out one night a week or whatever, or specific times, um, to do this. Right. So for a long time, like Wednesday night was like the thing where, um, I'd be focused a hundred, like, you know, after family dinner and stuff like that. And a hundred percent focused on music or something like that. So, so to me, the only, the only, um, repeating ritual really has to do with actually carving out time to do it. Um, and then it's just kind of, you know, what do you, what do you need to do to get, um, inspired or get started within that, within that time? How do you hold yourself to that, to that time? Um, well, for one thing, I negotiate it with my wife so that then it's just a sort of understood thing in the house, right? Like, okay, this is a thing that, um, we're doing. It was also a very creative person. Yeah, no, exactly. So she gets it like, you know, she, she has her own, her own, um, kinds of things, but, um, but yeah, I, um, I, so part of it is just making sure everyone else around you knows that this is a thing and just really working hard to be like, I need to get any work stuff I need to get done during the day because I can't bring work home tonight and, you know, things like that. Coming back uh, around a little bit to um, the caves, which for our oh, listeners yeah. is yep. the, the, the Doctor Who rock opera. Um, you talked about, um, or you've, you've said somewhere else, not on this podcast, that um, over a lot of your musical career, you've struggled to find your audience. Mm, mm-hmm. But with, with the with the creation of this project um that changed can you talk about that a little bit yeah so um yeah i had never um our because, old ben- the, the, the reason that I, I want it's you'll have a good specific answer but i think it's good for people to hear um uh, some thinking along the su- subject matter because i think as a, as creative people there's some element of us that is trying to do something that we think other people will like, no, whether it's art, music, writing, whatever. Yeah, um, for sure. That's so, not always the best path. Yeah. And, and, and so I think there's a, there's a bunch of different ways to kind of um, explain it or answer it. So one of them is kind of a practical 
one, um, which I think, th- and this is a thing that affects both this kind of stuff that I do on the side, but frankly, it affects the kind of um, business that we're in, right? Which is today, um, because of like the interconnectedness of everything, ideas are interconnected too. And frankly, ideas the best. And again, we, we, we see this and you probably see this too when doing brand work. Um, it's like the brands that are really successful are the ones that are out there that create multiple connections with multiple things in culture, right? If you only stand the old idea from advertising that if you just stand for that one thing um, is very limiting because that creates only one door that people can um, can get in. So just again, I know I'm going a little bit off topic, but like I love um, – the talking to like traditional uh, marketing people about Supreme as a brand, because they're like, I don't get that at all. What the hell is with that brand? Why are people paying so much for this stuff? That's like, just like, you know, really boring clothes that just have a, a logo on it. It's like, well, when you dig into it, what you realize is they started out within a very specific kind of niche, but what they've done is they've done all these partnerships that put their brand in all these different places and culture. So now instead of having one door into it, which is like skateboarders or whatever, they have like a hundred doors into it from music people and like all, all these different parts of culture. So I sort of take that to heart on even personal art, which is like I said, frankly, if I was one of those singer songwriters that wrote about personal um, stories, the world, I, I, I hate to say it this way. The world does not need another like white guy singer songwriters singing about his problems. Like they just don't, is not that interesting. And I know there are still people No, And I mean, I, I think there are still like Titans of the genre, right. You know? So, I mean, Jason Isbell is still out there, you know, like people are doing really, really good stuff within the context of that. But unless you are like incredibly good, like top tier, there's really no reason for anyone to engage in your stuff because you're not telling them anything that they don't already know or showing them anything that they haven't really um, seen before. So to me, what was educational about the caves thing was I tried in the past to get to like people who love like ethereal electronic music and people who love whatever. And we'd had like limited success in some cases being like, you know, trying to go after like, Oh, people, how come people who like this band don't like in the nineties, it was always like, why do people love like lady Tron, but they don't love our, our band in the, in the same way. Right. Um, and so these were, were always, always, um, hard to figure out. So with this thing, what I realized is um, what made it great was we did a complete end around and I did not promote it at all to music people. I promoted it to fans of Doctor Who, and within that, because that's such a large population, there's a significant amount of fans who also like cool music, right? So I was able to reach, if I tried to go at them as like, I want people who love synth pop, I'm one of 10,000 releases in any given week, right? If instead I go to people who love this other thing first, and then love synth pop second, suddenly we're like the center of attention. They're like, oh my God, I love music like this. And it also happens to be um, connecting with me in this on this totally um, other uh, level. So anyway, so I think that it's a, that's just a, another long way of saying, I think um, when you try and just, you know, if you're not getting through a particular door, you need to go through a back door and create some other kind of connection with those people. I see it also with like audio visual stuff, you know, that, um, that Donald Glover video, right? No one would have paid attention to that song if they hadn't made that video. So the, the entry point to the song 
was the was the fact that they built the song really around making that film, right? And it was the film that was powerful and it was the film that really got people um, kind of engaged. So I think more and more, you just have to think about like, what are all the ways in which I'm allowing people to come into my work? And if it's literally just me and my guitar and my ego, uh, that, that's probably like not gonna, you know, not gonna work as well. You know, what I mean? but you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not picking on anyone in particular. I'm just saying like, that's just a, that's just a, a fact, right? You, you have to be, you have to be a list if you're gonna, if that's the game you're gonna play. Guess I'll put my acoustic guitar away now. <laughs> hey, I, I have one too, and I've done it. I've done it. I'm not saying I haven't. <laughs> one of the questions we always like to ask, I think, is like if you could trade places with one other creative person, who would it be? Oh, damn. That's, and why, of course. Who would it be and why? Um, the um, Okay, hang on. Um, I no, I want to think about this because I, I've actually thought, um, <laughs> one, one weird, uh, sort of thing is like, I don't really have, um, I, I never sort of grew up with like, this person is my idol and I want to sort of be that person. So oddly, there's a lot of people that sort of inspire me, but that I would not necessarily take the, the next step of like, Oh, I would take their place. I think the only person that would come to mind and maybe it's just because we were talking about oblique strategies is Brian Eno. Because <laughs> I think if you get to a place where you are doing something uh where you've done so many things that are so unique um that then people just come to you with the expectation that you're gonna bring some magic um that they don't have to something, right? And that your your personal magic is something that people seek out. Um I think like my friend uh, Ed Ackerson, who's a, um, a longtime musical collaborator and is a, a, a musician and, and producer always just used to say, yes, sometimes you just get a chance where people just want to pay you to be you. Right. Um, and, and like, if you can get to that point where you're just like the dude, um, you know, at, at any given thing that that's like a really, really, you know, cool place to be. And for most people that doesn't last forever, but for some reason with Eno, it has lasted forever and it continues to last. Um, and frankly, he continues to do like really, really um, cool stuff. So definitely, definitely envious of, of that for sure. When you, um, when you speak to those, those high school students or anyone else, what would be one kind of singular piece of advice that you would say to them to inspire them creatively? Okay. Let me think on that one. Um, I think what I, what I would say is I sort of mentioned this earlier, but I think there's an awful lot of, um, sort of pop psychology out there. That's like, you just got to figure out what you're about, right. And bring that to the world with authenticity and like, you know, to just do what you love and do all this stuff. And my advice, um, usually to people is that's bullshit. If you're not, you know, oh, my favorite one is like, don't listen to the haters. And I'm like, no, listen to the haters. It doesn't mean you have to do what they say, but there is a chance that they may be saying something about what you're doing that is legitimate criticism, right? So I think we, the, this, this whole culture of like, you just got to be you and success will follow. 
I think is absurd, right? That that's that, anyway. Um, I won't. I won't. I won't. <laughs> I won't take it any further. But I mean, that's how we end up with like the political climate that we have, right? So it's just a bunch of people. Where it's like I'm just going to be me, and people are going to love me for being me, and there's no reason for me to compromise or to listen to anybody else for God's sake, right? And actually take other perspectives in. So I, I think actually we need to cultivate this idea of no, you should listen to the haters and you should listen to the fans, but take everything that they say with a grain of salt, and then you decide what to do with that information because if you ignore it you're not going to grow creatively you're just going to grow an ego right or you're just going to grow as a um as a you know you may you may grow your sort of self-confidence but you're going to actually sacrifice your creativity because you're not being made uncomfortable right it's that again get comfortable being uncomfortable so um yeah another long explanation but that's that's what but I a say. very good one it's hard to get people being comfortable with um, it's so like i mean it it's anecdotal but my my daughter just started playing high school sports and all the kids don't get to play the same amount right but all the parents don't understand and you're like <laughs> yeah. oh yes they do <laughs> yeah. it's not it's like not rec league anymore and it's we've worked so hard to make sure our kids are comfortable all the time that I feel like people get confused at this idea of challenge and you know what it takes to kind of grow exactly and that, and that's and that's what i'm saying is like i feel like some of the best stuff i've ever done is when um or like i there there's been a there's a huge um divide um and again we see this out in culture but among musicians like i have friends who if someone writes a bad review of their record, they'll get up on the social media and start criticizing the person who wrote that thing. Right. Or just getting like super defensive about it. And it's like, look, they have a job to do. You have a job to do. And first of all, you know, even if whatever they said was totally unjustified, how about just like, let it slide and focus on what you're doing. Right. Instead of, instead of what they're doing. Uh, but also, yeah, they called out the fact that like your songs are too long. This is what happened to me actually. I got to say this is one other thing about the like the 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 music that I'm making now is cuz in my old in the olden days in the 90s, I had many many people who were experienced um people in the music business just tell me your songs are way too long. Like, you know, songs on the radio. No, they'd be like, songs on the radio are three minutes. Your songs are six minutes. No radio station's going to play that. No one, right? And, and so what was funny is it was my friend Bruce, the same one that I was telling the, the story about Mason Jennings earlier. I played him the very first song I did with my band, uh, Astronaut Wife, the one that Janie and I were in before. And he was like, dude, this is really cool, but this song is five minutes. And if you want anybody to play it, you need to cut it to three and a half. Um, and so again, so I did that thing where I was like, God, I'm so pissed. Like this guy's like telling me, cause he's like a record industry guy that like, I have to compromise my vision. Cause I like that. It's like droney and dreamy and blah, 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 blah. So I, I went, I went away mad Then I took a breath and then I went back to it and I was like, okay, this is, this is a challenge, right? This is a challenge to me. So I took the, the, the recordings of the thing by damn it i cut it down to i I think it's actually 345 right so i I compromised but i got it under four minutes and within weeks um radio k which is the local college station was banging it every half hour like on their on their station and it was like the first band i'd ever been in that anybody cared about and it was because my friend told me you have to cut this down or no one's ever going to hear it um and and i i did get defensive at first but i took his advice 
And if I had not done, um, no one would have ever cared about that song, right? And and it ended up that a lot of people really, really loved it. Um, and it got us a lot of attention and kind of like paved the way for a lot of stuff that I've been doing. Um, so it is that kind of thing about how about just sit and listen to people and let them give their criticism. You can always say that you don't agree, um, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't listen. Is that the best advice you ever got? Uh I mean, that was definitely one of the bigger sort of pieces of practical advice I ever got was because that moment, um, similar to some of the other things where it's like these moments that then set you up for later relationships and later kind of um, success um, was absolutely, absolutely key because that band would have been nowhere um, if we hadn't done that. And if we hadn't done that band and if it hadn't kind of gotten somewhere, um, I probably just would have just completely quit doing stuff. Right. Um, so yeah, um, you could say that. How has having kids affected your creativity? Um, my, uh, my, again, when I look around at, um, some creative people I know, or people who grew up very creative or very kind of rock and roll or whatever, um, I have a very specific philosophy and Janie shares this too, which is like, if you give up your dreams for your kids, they will grow up to do the same. Right. So, um, we have very much a lead by example thing, which is like, you should live a creative life and you should continue to pursue these things that you, um, do because I know a whole crop of people who are like, well, I was doing all this stuff, but you know, it's, it's, it's about my son now, or it's about my, my daughter now. It's like, what do you think they're going to do then when they grow up and they get in that, um, what do they think the expectation is going to be when they get to your age? Do you think they're going to somehow uh, continue to, to press on? No, you've set the precedent that at some point you get too old to, to play with toys. Right. Um, so, so I think, um, yeah, I think, uh, parenting, um, setting an example of what it means to be passionate about creativity um, is an important aspect of parenting. So it passes it on to your kids. And then it also, like you were saying, it keeps you inspired um, to keep doing stuff because you know that you're setting an example. And I can just say, not everyone's the same, not every family's the same, but it certainly worked in my house because my oldest is already a more accomplished musician than either of us. Um, have ever been right. Um, I think as a, as a result of us showing that that's, um, something that we respect. That's good. I like it. Um, is there anything you want to mention? Any, any other projects coming up that, uh, well, we have a lot of, um, we do some show notes that'll, it'll be available to people where they can click and, you know, find all the, all of your creations and whatnot. No, I don't think so. The only thing I I would say is, um, uh, you know, I mean, and this will largely depend on, where we go and where people live. But, but my current project is actually to turn that caves album into a live show of some kind. Um, yes. and so we are actually putting together a band. We're going to do some, um, we're going to do kind of like, I guess I would describe it as workshopping bits of it, um, at the turf club in December at a show that we're playing with some friends, um, and then sort of see if we can do it up bigger, uh, next year. So I am kind of, um, trying to figure out how to um how to turn that that thing that i made in my house under headphones into something that you know that we could make a make a show out of so that's a sort of tbd um it's out there but but yeah otherwise um nothing else specific otherwise listeners 
uh, should go supported on Bandcamp because the proceeds go to Doctors Without Borders. Yes, correct. Well, I believe we'll wrap it up. Thank you. All right, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. This is thanks, cool. Christian. This is cool. Yeah.